Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Simply Amazing. Tim Ryder, Taryn Sharma, not much doing. We are about three weeks away from uh, spring, from uh, camp opening. Spring training games will kick off about a week or so later. Uh, Taryn, how you how you getting through the winter, pal? We don't we haven't had much Mets news, and it feels like there's uh, maybe some dribs and drabs coming, but that that might be about it. I've basically just been watching football because the Mets aren't giving me much to be excited about, and uh, really the market as a whole. It's just not moved like we thought it was uh, was going to after Otani and Yamamoto kind of fell. There's still so many really good players out on the market. And I also thought that the trade market was going to start getting hot after the Soto deal. and, And we just haven't seen it. It's a little strange. Yeah, I mean, you look at some of the names that are still out there. I mean, yeah, you got your your Matt Chapman's and Cody Bellinger's with the QO attached, but you know, I'm curious to see if Joey Votto lands somewhere. You would imagine he would. Um, still, kind of weird that he won't be in Cincinnati, but it is what it is. Um, you know that you know uh, Ryu is gonna is gonna land somewhere. Jock Peterson's still out there. Um, Liam Hendricks has to land somewhere. I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, Moves going around, I guess a lot of, of moving parts, I should say that. Um, you have to assume the Mets will be somewhat involved. You have so many names out there, but, you know, they're talking about Ryan Stanek. Ryan Stanek, who's coming from the Astros. I think yeah. that would be a really nice addition. We'll get into him in a second. There was a little buzz on the, uh, on the hot stove over the last week. Uh, Josh Hader, um, of course, you know, Milwaukee, San Diego is now going to Houston, five ninety-five, uh, five years, ninety-five million, yep. uh, no deferred money. So it's actually the largest relief uh, relief pitcher contract in Major League Baseball history, nineteen million um, per year annual average value. Uh, Edwin Diaz, of course, was the previous title holder there. Five years, one hundred two million was his deal. He had twenty-six point five deferred, so his uh, luxury tax. AAV works out to about 18.6 million. So of course Hader comes in just a tick higher. But uh it, is there a comparison there in your mind, Taryn, as far as Hader and Diaz? Are they on that same level? Do you think Hader's extra, you know, four hundred million, uh four hundred thousand a year signifies a little bit more um I guess talent in his corner or or value or productivity in his corner like uh, in my eyes they're on the same chapter right yeah i put them in the same category of relievers guys that really shorten the game guys that are kind of give the other team that sense of impending doom towards the uh the sixth seventh inning and you know that this guy's going to be there at the end other than the uh the brief hiccup for him 
early in the year with San Diego. And, and I guess that there's some parallels there between that and then the 2019 season for, uh, for Diaz is uh, these guys have been pretty consistently excellent at the back end of the bullpen. And so um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I think that that's probably the right number for somebody like that. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad that the Mets got Diaz at, at the price that they did. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the market as a whole has been growing each season. So I think that it kind of does fall on almost a, an exact same plane. If you want to talk about, you know, increase as far as inflation or just cost of living or however you want to look at it. Oh, looks like we just got the hall of fame, uh, results in as we were oh, talking give it to me uh I, i'm i'm i have it on mute i thought we still had some time so it looks like beltray's in they're giving us some uh some clips there yep oh he's going one at a time we're going live right now all right we get a little live reaction so beltray's in i can't hear what the uh the gentleman from the hall of fame is saying because we're on mute and i do not have uh subtitles on um beltray's in that, that's a uh surefire Thing that couldn't have been any sort of uh, question there, right? Yeah, I think that the question was whether he was going to set the highest percentage for third baseman. So uh, ESPN was writing about this today. Um, it was uh, David Schoenfeld. He said that, uh, or he pointed out the highest percentages amongst third basemen were uh, George Brett. He was on all but nine ballots, so 98.2% chipper. Uh, 97.2%. He was on, on all but 12 ballots. The, it's silly to me that anyone would leave those two guys off at all. And then, <laughs> uh, Schmidt was on all but 16, 96.5% uh, percent of ballots. So uh, whether he yeah, gets I'm sorry, that. I didn't mean to cut you off, but your, 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 your Twinkie, Joe Maurer, is in. I'm sorry. Yeah. Please continue. We'll, I'm going to let you get into Joe Maurer because I'm sure you have uh, a nice little section prepared. Well, yeah, I think that one thing that has been interesting being here, I didn't, you know, grow up a Twins fan or anything like that. I moved here and started rooting for them. And um, it's just, it's funny the difference between how some people uh, view him being from here and and, uh, within the fan base, uh, you know, whether they think they didn't hit enough home runs or that uh, his career didn't amount to what they were hoping for. I think a lot of that is affected by the, the team not winning a playoff game during that time. And um, it's been well documented. There's a great documentary about it on YouTube about how uh, kind of freak that occurrence was um, for them to not win a playoff game in that time based on, what their win percentages were in each of those games. But uh, I think he's, he's a great, great catcher. And I think that, that position has been routinely underrated. There should be more catchers in the hall of fame because uh, that to me is the toughest position um, to go back there. And five days a week, you're catching uh, not only managing a staff over many, many years, but then to have the offensive production that Joe Maurer did, um, I think he's just an excellent ball player, excellent human being, and uh, and will be a, a great representative for Minnesota in the uh, the Hall of Fame. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm so excited for him. I was a huge fan, and we just I'm just reading the screen here, and Todd Helton, who I've been 
you know, private. I've I've seen Todd Helton go from not quite an afterthought, but not the 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 you're getting in man type of candidate over the last few years, and I'm so happy he got in. I got to watch pretty much the entirety of Todd Helton's career, and watching Todd Helton, I looked at him and said he's a Hall of Famer. He was one of the best hitters I ever saw. He was a, a beyond decent fielder. I, I'm so happy, man. I'm so happy that he got in. I'm so happy that um, Todd Elton, the former Tennessee volunteer quarterback. That's correct. <laughs> what is this? The uh, that's the Conan O'Brien podcast. <laughs> oh. But um, but that's it. So it looks like Billy Wagner and Gary Sheffield both fell short. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a shame. Wow. Yeah, I was really, I was thinking Billy was getting in. That's a shame. But he's, is, uh, is he done? He's not off, is he? No, no, he's only a few years in. Okay. But boy, that's, that's disappointing. I was really hoping Billy Wagner was getting in today. I mean, we, we can go on for a long time talking about how great of a reliever Billy Wagner was. That is genuinely disappointing that he didn't get in. Because, I mean, everyone's got the information at their fingertips. And now it's been touted, you know, pretty much across social media. Anyone with a, a good baseball mind and and a following has been, you know, I, I can't find anyone who's saying that Billy Wagner's not a Hall of Famer. That's just very disappointing. I mean, great for Helton. Great for Maurer. Uh, unbelievably thrilled for them. Beltre, you knew he was getting in. He's a he's an all timer. Um, but boy, that's a a punch in the gut that we don't get a uh, a Billy Wagner induction this year. I was really thought it was coming. I was, I you know you're never sure, but I I was feeling pretty good about him. That's disappointing. Uh yeah. Um and also <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I thought he was uh, on pace to get in, so that's that's pretty surprising. But um, Gary Sheffield also in his last year on the ballot um, did not get in, which all short. you know I I I I think all of us probably emulated that um, that stance at one point or another, <laughs> uh, which he had to do because his hands were so fast that he needed to to slow them down. Um, I. I think he was a tremendous hitter and and is also worthy of being in the Hall of Fame and the Veterans Committee will probably get him in there but I I I really feel like we're missing an entire generation of ball players in the Hall of Fame and so for a museum to tell an incomplete story because they're being held hostage by the feelings of the the people that you know may follow it very closely may not and almost certainly benefited from the presence of of those guys who were doing what they were doing at the time during that era. Um, it, it feels wrong to me, and that's that's really disappointing that um, that those guys have been left out and continue to be left out because I, I think that they're essential to the story of baseball, especially the, the post-strike era. Absolutely. I'm sorry. I'm just looking at some numbers now. Wagner came in at 73.8%. He has one more year. I thought he had a couple left. He has one more. Gary Sheffield only got 63.9%. So he lost a bunch in that last half. Well, I would probably say it's about 45% of ballots that weren't counted by the guys over at uh, at the uh, Hall of Fame tracker, which tip of the cap, terrific work every single year. 
Um, David Wright stayed on the ballot. He finished at 6.2%. Nice. Let's go. Yeah. You know, he's never going to get elected by the, by the writers and that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say never. It's highly unlikely he gets inducted by the voters. Yeah. That's fine. As long as they can keep him on the ballot, man, that is just, it's such a testament to what he did in such a small outside of his control amount of time. Like, I'm very happy that he gets to stay on. That's a um a badge of honor to stay on that on that ballot. You, you know who fell off though, and that it it hurts my soul is Bartolo Colon. <laughs> um, David Wright is a guy that's really worth celebrating, and so I'm I'm glad that he will get one more year at least uh, to be discussed. Um, someone sent me this uh, the, the other day. Uh, so Gary Sheffield finished his career with an OPS plus of 140 and 60 and a half B war. And there are only seven other non-active players with that high of an OPS plus and baseball reference war who aren't in the hall of fame bonds who holds, who's not yet eligible. Uh, a rod Mark McGuire, Manny Ramirez, and Miguel Cabrera, who's not yet eligible, and Shoeless Joe Jackson. So uh, I think all of those guys more or less deserve to be in. And um, and and so I, I feel bad that Sheffield did not make it. Uh, I always remember that he hit his 500th with the Mets, which I was, you know, that I, I was very excited when that happened. So <laughs> um, my favorite Gary Sheffield memory uh, was he was not with the Mets at the time. He was with the Yankees, but we were at a Subway Series game, and it was, um, it was an afternoon day game, probably a Fox televised game. And we had tickets like on the third base line. And every time Sheffield came up, man, you had to have your head on a swivel because he could just, he could send one into the seats at any given time. And this is way before the, the years of uh, of offense, of the, uh, the netting <laughs> along the side, bro. Like, I'm talking screamers. Like if this would have caught someone flush, it would have killed somebody. The the quickest bat I've ever seen is Gary Sheffield. Um, yeah. yeah. What a shame. So who, I'm looking at who else fell off. Jose Reyes got zero votes and um, I have no comment there. Yeah. Matt Holiday only got 1% of the vote. Matt Holiday, I think deserves a little bit more of a nod, but. It Matt is. Holiday had a great career, and he did. Uh, he's probably a whole very good, but I thought he deserved a bit of a bit more of push there. Well, I, I think that Jackson will recognize his father in his <laughs> speech. So, um, this, so. this is another know. one. Um, I, I don't know if you follow CJ Fogler. I, he's one of the best people uh, I follow on Twitter, but it's at CJ zero. And he tweeted out this video from MLB network. It says Tom Verducci said that Joe Maurer was so good that Max Scherzer created a cut fastball just to strike Maurer out, which speaks (laughs) to both of those guys and (laughs) reminds you what a maniac Max is. All right. So over the course of Gary Sheffield's entire career. So this isn't just his peak. This is from 1988 through 2009. 140 on weighted runs, weighted runs created plus is 15th among all players in that era from 88 to 2009. Some of the guys ahead of him, Ryan Braun is actually 143 just ahead of him. Jason Giambi, Chipper Jones, Kevin Mitchell. Oh, wow. No, that can't be right. 
900. Uh, all right, let me shorten that up to about, uh, oh, I don't know. Let's go a thousand games. Sorry. <laughs> let me close that up. Like Kevin Mitchell, what is he doing here? But we can skip over that. Jim Tomey, Edgar Martinez, Lance Berkman. Lance Berkman's another one. Boy, he was a hell of a player. A-Rod, Jeff Bagwell, Manny, Frank Thomas, Mark McGuire, Albert Pujols, and Barry Bonds. So, I mean, you're you're among the cream of the cream. And I know that he's got that the the, the steroid cloud hanging over him. But I, honestly, I mean, if I had a vote, I, I wouldn't care. <laughs> it's an entire era of the game. You can't just ignore it. Um, it was as level as a playing field, I think, as anybody could really think of. I mean, it's not like it was a few select guys doing juice. It was league-wide. It was rampant. And the league allowed it to happen, to to shut these guys out of recognition that they deserve because of that. Because there's no denying Gary Sheffield's resume. It's got to be the steroid thing. And if you have 63 point whatever percent of the voting population okay with it, you almost feel like it's, it's, it's criminal that – these voters who don't agree and again it's their opinion and their it's their right to decide and they earn this right they earn this privilege i just don't understand it i just don't but i guess it's not the hypocrisy the hypocrisy really bothers me right because um i like david ortiz i think he's a great character i i think that he had probably more clutch moments than anybody in the history of the game especially considering the circumstances of them uh, David Ortiz was also mixed up in uh, in some of those allegations, and it didn't seem to affect him at all. At all. So I think a lot of it is like just being well liked, and to me that that really peeves me because listen, that I could live to be a hundred. I'm not sure I'll ever see a better hitter than Bonds, one that totally affected the opposing team's game plan in that way. And and really carried an entire organization to what should have been uh, uh, the promised land. He uh, is quite possibly the greatest baseball player ever. And so for him to not be in and to really not even get the consideration, uh, it, it's just that is so irksome to me. Oh, absolutely. It's I guess this is the crux of the Hall of Fame. It was created by you know the commissioner but it was created by a commissioner who was formerly a baseball writer like this was the hall of fame was created to give the baseball writers a tool to use and and of course it ties into the history of the game and that's fine and it's become so much more than what it was originally constructed as but it to to use that privilege to make decisions that are completely out of the realm of their what would be the way to put, I couldn't even, I wouldn't even know how to put, like, I wish, I guess maybe it was Susan Slusser from um, the, uh, the Chronicle maybe. Yeah. Okay. One she, of the Bay area newspapers. One of the Bay, and she's terrific. She's one of my favorite um, writers follows on Twitter. She's outstanding. Yeah. So, um, she, she, I guess they had an article a few weeks ago, and I wish I could pull it up. But her quote was that the, um, the Hall of like they've asked the Hall of Fame for clear guidance on what to do about this, the, the, um, the morality clause, the, um, you know, pretty much what's keeping steroid users out. Um, cause in other, 
you know, Hall of Fames, they don't have this. There's no morality clause in the, in the Football Hall of Fame, the NBA yeah. Hall of Fame. O.J. Simpson's in there. <laughs> this is correct. Um, it, it, it's and they and they leave it. They purposely leave it vague. It's almost like they they relish the controversy and. Uh, I, you know, I wish I could put all of what I'm trying to say together right now, but I can't. As you can see, we're recording this on the fly as we just got <laughs> results. But it's it's so disappointing because as fans, we put so much into the Hall of Fame. We put so much into this game. You know, I don't know about living and dying with it. I think everyone saw the clip of that Bills fan, like, sobbing on the field after the Bills lost on Sunday. I don't think – I couldn't ever find myself in that position, but – you know, we dedicate a lot of our time, a lot of our money in some cases to these to our teams. And, you know, these players, we develop, of course, you know, far, far detached, but relationships with these players. Like we look at them and we're like, oh, you know, David Wright, Duda, we'll never meet neither of these guys in our lives. But it had, you got you had all of New York in 2015 talking like these guys were their buddies. You know, we developed these such a, a, a fondness for these players. And, and you know, Billy Wagner or even Gary Sheffield, who played a season or two here. Yeah. Y you just you root for it and you see things taken away from guys by stuff that's one out of their control and by voters who. And I don't want to paint them with a with a brush because some of them are very, very mindful of what they're doing and very careful and take the privilege very seriously. Yeah. You just feel like others don't. And they they want to cause a they want to put out a ballot that gets clicks on Twitter like that's not what this is for and it's watering down the product and there's guys who should be in the Hall of Fame who just aren't and you know hopefully the committees get it right down the road but it's a shame you're putting fans of these players through the ringer you're putting these players through the ringer year after year it's it's disheartening even from the outside we're we're not affected as fans but in a way we are. And it's still incredibly disappointing. Can you imagine what Billy uh, Wagner's at? How he's feeling today? A couple of votes shy. I wish I knew the amount of votes. Five. A handful. Five. It was five? Five, yeah. Oh. I want to talk to these five voters. I do. I want to talk to all. I want to. I just. I don't understand it. Outside of Mariana Rivera, there's not, you know, statistically, there's not many relievers much better, man. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a damn shame. I know we kind of riffed and went way off topic here, but I think we had fun with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you want to talk Stanek real quick? I do. I, I hope that they that the Mets are in the mix. Mark Feinsand of MLB.com mentioned that um, the Mets had an eye on him. I wish I had the exact phrasing here, but um, I'd be all into that, man. He only throws three pitches, fastball, splitter, slider. Gets great action on everything. It looks like he has decent command, at least command in the upper half of the zone with his fastball. And if you're able to command your fastball in the upper half and you throw a splitter, that has the potential to be extremely effective because if you're coming in high in the zone, and again, you have a split second and it looks like a fastball and that thing's going to drop three, four, 12 inches, you know, that's a, um, that's a big advantage. I saw him. I put a clip up on Twitter. Um, he got uh, Polanco to pop out in the ALDS with just a perfectly placed four seam that, you know, 
you wouldn't dare throw this pitch to a hitter like Polanco unless you knew exactly where you had to put it and knew that you were going to put it right there. And he did. It was inside high corner of the strike zone. So it was in the zone, but it was in a place that Polanco, the only thing he could do with it was send it up in the air, either going to go foul or it's going to go to the middle infield, which went to the middle infield and it closed the inning. But yeah, he seems like a power guy with the savvy of a junk thrower. That's just the instant kind of reaction I get from him. I, I hope the Mets can make a play for him. I really do. I think it would be a nice – what were we talking about it last week, I think, was like a, a, a 2A, 2B with – um with uh, oh, my goodness, uh, the other reliever behind Diaz right now. Um, uh, tip of my tongue, why can't I think of his name? My goodness. <laughs> uh, just on Stanek, uh, I, I think um, – he had like a, a significantly better, just looking at some numbers I'm here. Sorry, it was Brooks Raley. I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, a significantly better 2022 than 2023. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't follow the Astros super closely, so I'm not sure what exactly the cause for that was. But batters were hitting about. 40 points higher against him um, this past year, slugging significantly better against him this past year. And, uh, and he threw fewer innings. So I think that there was like an ankle injury mixed in there at some point. Um, Cause I, I remember him getting hurt, but um, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much of an effect that had or, uh, or, or what happened, but uh, this is exactly the type of guy you talk about, stuff you posted the video that the 97 fastball i think that's the exact type of guy that you want to get into the pitching development lab and see if there's more stuff there um so yeah i'm i'm all for it looking at it now nothing's really changed as far as usage he goes heavy to left-handers with the splitter heavy to right-handers with the slider he tries to stay inside on everybody it looks like that hasn't changed in recent years. Four-seam splitter, really. He had identical batting average against on his splitter, 189 in 22 and 23. Hmm. The slider got touched up, you know, 280 and 296 respectively, 22 and 23. But the four-seam, I mean, slugging was minuscule. Oh, he had slugging on his slider, jumped big time last year. Looks like guys maybe were tipping, maybe picking that up, possibly a tip. Everything else is right on. I mean, he was always his slugging on the slider was at 320 the year before, jumped up to 520 last year. So I mm -hmm. think that's an indicator. Maybe he was either giving away or just the placement of it was was not as crisp. But yeah, his Woba jumped 60 points from 2022 to 23 on the slider. So yeah, I I, appear, I would guess either he was tipping or the shape of his slider was being was um predictable maybe wasn't crisp maybe just guys were new you know oh here comes the slider this is where it's going i'm hoping that if the mets are of course able to to bring him in i write i have huge you know hopes for this pitching lab and and the new r d and i, I really i'm expecting big jumps from everyone from you know your severino who just came in your guys who were you know 
your depth guys now, your Lucchese's, your <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> um, Tyler McGill. You know, I'm looking for jumps from everybody, but you bring in Stanek, who who, who could be a, an extremely valuable reliever with just like minor minor flaws like this where it could just be a tinker or finger pressure or move a finger or you know you put i know the astros have great analytics teams and, and yeah you know, but you know a new set of eyes could could really turn him out i think he has the stuff to really flourish and if lopez can be a guy that the mets think they he can be and if Whaley, who thank goodness i finally remembered his name um if he can be consistent and and stay around throughout most of the year um you know you add a guy like static to that that's a pretty deep four you have drew smith picking up you know sixth and maybe some seventh inning outs maybe you do get out of Eno to jump back in the mix and you have you know a, a really solid bullpen and you know if the mets aren't going to be adding a lot more firepower whether it be in their rotation or whether it be into their lineup a solid bullpen is, you know, pretty much a, you know, that's a, a huge criteria for a contending team, especially if you're going to be fighting for a, a wild card spot, which, you know, on paper, it looks like the Mets are going to be trying to do unless they make some big changes in the next few weeks. But, um, yeah, I think it could be big, even if they don't get static. Um, I like this group, but I do think they need one more piece. And I think he would be such a great, great addition. Yeah, and I think being creative with the bullpen also uh, is a smart way to kind of get around not spending a ton on starting pitching, shortening these games. And uh, worst comes to worst, you can always deal these guys because uh, they're not going to be signing long-term contracts. There's not going to be a ton of money tied up in any of these guys. And you see like what the Pirates did with, um, with Chapman, which I'm glad that that's not a headache that the Mets are dealing with because uh, I don't want to have to rationalize uh, rooting for the team to do well while, uh, you know, his whole thing. But um, I, I I think that it's smart because, like, you give this guy some guaranteed money and then you just eat the salary and flip him for a prospect or whatever at the deadline because you're probably not going to compete. And uh, and so I, I think that the Mets can kind of follow that as well as they wait for some of their prospects to come up. And and also having a good bullpen makes it uh, more likely that when these prospects do come up, you're going to be winning games. And so uh, they're kind of getting to experience what it feels like to have your hard work kind of pay off with uh, with important games down the stretch, even if you're not going to necessarily compete for more than the second wild card. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, having options over 162 is a great thing because a lot can happen. Like you said, the Mets could be in the mix and say, oh, you know what, let's cash in and, and look towards next year. They could have a miracle run and be like, okay, let's let's build. You know, it's 162. I believe. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said you got to believe. You have to. It's part of the criteria to be a Mets fan, man. Ah. Oh. I'm still bummed about Wagner, man. I really am. Uh, look at Joe Maurer. He still looks like he could pick up a bat and play. <laughs> he does. He's got a little gray on the sides and on the top, but that doesn't matter, man. He still looks like he could play. Yeah, he's the man. They they brought him out last year, 
And uh, he only struck out one time in high school. So they brought out the one guy that struck him out. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like a normal dude. That's amazing. Yeah. The one guy who struck him out in high school, they brought him out? Yeah. <laughs> um, he, uh, I, I touched on this a, a little bit, but like he is uh, as good a person as you'll find, I think. And um, he, there was a kid who was, uh, uh, at his high school and suffered extreme learning disabilities and, and all sorts of, uh, cognitive issues. And, um, he invited this kid to come sit at his table with him. And, you know, Joe Maurer was always the man, like not only was he a great baseball player, number one overall pick, but he was also recruited to go play, uh, as a starting quarterback at Nebraska and Florida state and all of the traditional early two thousands powers, late nineties powers. And, uh, and he made it a point to, uh, to invite this kid to sit at his table. And, and that kid said that he was never bullied after that, after Joe would walk with him to class and, and eat lunch with him and, so for someone who has everything going for them to to really reach out to somebody who doesn't necessarily have that and uh, and make it a point, I think that it really speaks to the type of character that he has. And, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of amazing. Uh, kid from St. Paul and he goes to high school there and the stars just align that the twins are terrible at that time and they draft him. And he spends 15 years playing for his hometown ball club. I mean, that's that's amazing. And I think that's what we all hope for with our teams. And um, so really, really excellent and very glad that he made it. He only made it by four votes, which, uh, you know, tells you about the margins. Five votes uh, going against Wagner and four votes going for uh, uh, Maurer making the difference there. But uh yeah, I, that's that's awesome. Uh, I'm pumped for that, and and being able to see how people are reacting here that's that's great. Um, what do you think this means for Buster Posey once he hits the ballot? Yeah, I think Buster's for sure. Uh, uh, me too. I feel the same way. But people are like, what? I guess when it first came up in conversation, they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't see catchers do what Buster Posey did very often. I, in my eyes, he's a Hall of Famer, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, well, I, I count a lot of the pitching success that they had during that time uh, in Buster's favor as well. Yeah. And uh, and he won everything, obviously, not only individually, but his team success is, is uh, really kind of unmatched in this era. And um, I know that, that uh, maybe it shouldn't be a part of it, but it is. Uh, I, I think it's your accomplishments in the biggest moments are, are an important part of it, and he has – postseason moments and um i think he'll make it i think i i i think he'll probably make it the first time oh that's i'm gonna write that one down i haven't met um i haven't met under three and a half years on the ballot i wrote it down a few years ago it's on the wall like literally I, as you know i write i write it down on the wall yeah um, i'm writing i'm putting you right next to it taryn's Do got it. that one year on the ballot you're, you're going on the wall as we speak yeah, I feel like I'm on uh, inside the NBA. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, all right, guys, uh, we do have another segment after today. Uh, Noah Cattell, who you may have seen his work uh, at the New York Times, Ringer, The Guardian, The Atlantic, 
Slate, Decider, BBC, does a lot of movie and TV reviews. What his book is coming out is called um, Baseball the Movie, which, as you can guess, it's about baseball movies. So Noah's going to join us for a little bit to close out the show. Taryn, are we going to see you next week, pal? I know you're so busy lawyer in these days. Uh, yeah, I hope so. All right. Oh, as we get closer to the season, hopefully we're going to get more news. And um, I might even take a surprise trip down to Port St. Lucie this spring. Ooh. Well, this spring, this February, we shall see. Maybe we'll have to uh, I'll have to record an episode from uh, from PSL. Awesome. All right, Taryn. We'll see you next week, buddy. You guys hang tight. I think we're just going to hear that little uh, subway tone and um, we'll be talking to Noah. Hang tight. We'll be right back. And welcome back. Uh, we're closing out today's show with another special guest, another author special guest, which seems to be a theme over the last couple of episodes. Uh, you may you may know him on Mets Twitter. He bounces around a lot, has some terrific opinions about our favorite team. Um, our buddy's joining us today to plug his new book. It's coming out in May. It's called Baseball the Movie. Uh, you may have seen his bylines uh, on the New York Times. I actually had a terrific interview with Gary Keith and Ron last season. I'm sure he caught that. Uh, other action at The Ringer, his Substack. Really, really happy to welcome uh, Noah Gattel to the program. Noah, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be here. I'm a, I'm a longtime listener and your uh, your words and your thoughts uh, they really get me through some of the uh, the dark times we have in the middle of these uh, seasons. I, I really appreciate your your cautious optimism. It's uh, very valuable. Uh, cautious, delusional. I kind of <laughs> on the borderline of these things, but hey, I do appreciate the um, the praise and of course the listens and the support. And yeah, we we like to have fun here. Um, really quick before we get into the book. The New York Times article with Gary Keith and Ron last year, that must have been quite the experience, man. You're getting to talk to, to you know, legends in the area. Gary Cohen is going to be a Hall of Famer one day. Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling, um, amazing ball players in their own right, amazing broadcasters in their own right. What was that like, man? That must have been a thrill. It was incredible. I mean, you know, those guys, I've been listening to them for 18 years now. Or, and I've, I mean, they're like, they're like my friends, you know, I mean, it, it's more than like a sitcom or anything. I spend every night with these guys for, for six months of the year. And the best part of it was when I went in to talk to them, like they were just exactly who you would think they would be. Ron was very professorial. He was the first one in the booth. He was doing his homework. He was working. Keith showed up with, uh, an ice cream and half a box of M&Ms just laughing and having a good time. And the thing about Keith that I thought was interesting is, you know, we always hear like what a ladies man he was back in the eighties and everything. And uh, he comes off as sort of like a bumbling uncle on, on the broadcast, you know, that's his, that's his role, but man, I'll tell you, he, he's got tractor beam eyes. He's got one of those gazes when he locks in on you, he is so charismatic in real life. And that was one of the surprises. And, and when I was sitting down talking to him, I was like, okay, I see how this guy, uh, he pulled what he pulled back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like, yeah, that the, uh, the vibe as the young kids say yep, is, uh, is likely it. still strong. hundred percent. He's got whatever it is. He's got it. <laughs> <laughs> he is Keith Hernandez. Um, 
so yeah, no, that must have been a thrill. It was a great article to read, and I'm sure it was uh, amazing to to partake in it. But let's jump into the book, Baseball the Movie. Um, I think we all have, you know, a certain affinity for baseball movies as baseball fans. Um, I'll find myself crying at sports movies more than I do so at dramas. It's just, it tugs at the heartstrings for sports fans. So what I'm gathering, and again, the book's not out yet. I haven't read anything yet. But what I'm gathering, this is almost like a definitive history of the genre itself. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely what I was going for. You know, there have been a couple other books about baseball movies, uh, broadly speaking, and I think they all have some value. But I, I couldn't find one that really found that sweet spot between kind of taking them seriously as a cultural artifact and also just loving them the way that we do. And that's what I tried to do with this book. I start at uh, The Pride of the Yankees, which to me is like, it's kind of the first proper baseball movie because it's the one that convinced Hollywood that baseball movies could be successful and profitable. And I think that the success of that movie really laid the groundwork for all the baseball movies that followed. And then I just kind of trace the genre's path all the way up to the present. And I look at, you know, how the baseball movie changed over time, when it got popular, when it wasn't popular, and really more uh, more so looking into how the changes within the baseball movie kind of reflected things that were going on in baseball, in Hollywood, and in America. You know, one thing I, I look at is uh, the, the films of the 70s, for example, like Bang the Drum Slowly, Bingo Long, and The Bad News Bears, how those movies, they're much more disillusioned about baseball. They're like subversive movies as opposed to holding it up as this like patriotic ideal. And I think a lot of that has to do with the broader disillusionments of the 70s, but also kind of like disillusionments people had about baseball because it was just a couple years before the 70s that Jim Bouton's book, Ball Four, came out and kind of blew the lid off what these guys were really like. And maybe they weren't all these perfect people that we thought they were. You know, and so that's the 70s, but you can kind of do that with any decade, with any era of the baseball movie. And that's basically what I do throughout the book. Now, like, all right, so um, I always come to this conclusion, not even conclusion, almost this just this discussion when you go when you come to baseball movies is Field of Dreams, yeah, which almost seems like a drama with the backdrop of baseball. Um, of course, wonderful movie. Some people may say it's not quite a baseball movie, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but um, it, it's like, I guess, like you said, where it, the baseball movie can be not only, I guess, created in so many different veins, but has evolved in so many different ways. You can take the comedy slapstick ball four ish major league approach. You can take the, um, the very romanticized, very dramatic, um, you know, field of dreams approach. There's so many ways to do it. And it almost feels like the end product is still something that makes you appreciate the game more. Yeah. Makes you look past the game itself and, and see these athletes that again, it's, it's the national pastime for a reason. Is it still the American, the national pastime? Eh, that's debatable, but yeah, it's, you know, these are idols to kids. These are idols to some adults. It's it, it's cool to see the whether it's, you know, true life, true stories type thing or, or a fictional story. It's it adds a human element that's not there 
watching the game or watching a post game interview. And it's, um, it, it, it's, it's a soulful way to look at the game. I've always right. loved baseball movies of sports movies in general. Just like I said earlier, it, it, they, they tug at the heartstrings of sports fans that some other, you know, mediums just can't do it. It's I'm really, I'm, I cannot understate how excited I am to read this book. Um, you know, I think, I think you raised a lot of great points there. I mean, the question of like, what is a baseball movie is a really interesting one because whatever definition you come up with, you can probably come up with an exception. Like I, I would generally say to me, a baseball movie is a movie in which the baseball moves the story forward, you know, like major league, obviously like what happens in the baseball scenes, like that's what the story is. Uh, Bad News Bears, like the baseball is what matters in those movies. Bull Durham, even, even though it's not about whether the team wins or not, certainly like the baseball scenes move the plot forward. Field of Dreams does not do that. Like none of the baseball in that movie really matters, except maybe like the sacrifice fly Moonlight Graham gets, you know, that is like an important moment for him. But that's it. The rest of it is just atmosphere and color. But it's there's so much of that. Like the, the the baseball is so fundamental to what the movie is about, even though there's no baseball action in it or very little, I still do consider it a baseball movie. But I totally agree with you. There's there's so many sports movies. And in a weird way, we're in like a boom for sports movies right now. Not a baseball movie boom, but there have been basketball movies, racing movies, wrestling movies. There's a ton of stuff coming out. To me, the baseball movies are always the best. And it's not just because it's my favorite sport. I think there is something like uniquely cinematic about baseball. I get into this a little bit in the book. You know, these are this is a sport of confrontations. You know, you the pitcher and the batter and plays at the plate, you know, rough collisions at second base. There's a lot of like kind of one on one drama that almost sometimes feels like a Western. You know, we look at what John DeMarcico has been doing in the booth at SNY and like creating these cinematic moments. I interviewed him as well for uh, for The New York Times a couple of years ago. Like there, there is just something inherently movie like about this sport. And I, I think that's that, that's why the movies are so good. It's just easy to capture. Oh, sure. And and it's I mean, it's it. It, it kind of hits all the boxes of. I guess you, you, you nailed it perfectly there where it's individual and it's team. It's yes. Yes. It's, it's a constant, just, it's a struggle on so many different levels. And that's just on the field. And then you think about the, the, the greater sense of a room of 25 athletes together for six months of the year. Then you Mm -hmm. think of off time and how that and travel and you know there's so many different elements that can come into it and that's just on the baseball side and then you have the lives that are being like intertwined with the athlete lives and yeah. it's ah it's wonderful it's- i actually i actually think that like there's a lot more that could be done with it like you know as i said like there haven't been a lot of baseball movies but the way you, recently but the way you describe it now i feel like you could take any great season that any team has ever had in baseball, and you could probably make a really cool movie out of that season if you did it properly, if you picked the right characters to focus on and the right on-field stories and the right off-field stories. There's just so much material there over the course of a season that I think I, I hope that there's more more movies like that coming because it really is rich, fertile ground. I mean, I don't know how we would create a screenplay 
with the peak being rat or raccoon, but you know, <laughs> to do a weekend. Well, I'll tell you one thing about the New York Mets is there is always a good story going on with this team. You could pick probably any season in their history and find something interesting to make a movie about. <laughs> and just imagine like you could, uh, you could craft and this could be a generic about any team, but going like, I mean, and, I guess it would be in the vein of the the major league type thing where spring training through the end of the season, but there's always going to be storylines. There's always going to be. And of course, if you're doing fictional stuff, you could take it into personal lives and tie that stuff in. And there's always going to be drama, whether it's sports drama, personal drama. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much potential. I think there's a lot of potential in this medium. A lot. Well, I make, I make the case in the book. I don't want to spoil too much of it, but spoil, spoil. Well, I make the case that the Mets are actually a very overrepresented team in baseball cinema. Like there hasn't been a, a movie about the Mets, you know, like Major League was about the the then Indians, now Guardians. But they pop up in a lot of movies. You know, there there was that very weird time travel serial killer movie frequency a few a uh, couple decades ago with Dennis Quaid and Jim Caviezel that was about uh, it, it all was set against the background of the 69 Mets. They feature in all the men in black movies. You know, Bernard Gilkey has a cameo in the first men in black movie where he's watching a spaceship fly overhead while he's standing in left field and he gets hit in the head with a with a fly ball. <laughs> and then in the last men in black and men in black three, there's a great scene where this alien character is standing at Shea Stadium and he's watching in his mind, he's watching uh, the end of the 69 World Series and talking about how improbable it was uh, that that happened. All the stars that had to align to create that moment. And I think there's something look, the Mets are the miracle Mets and they're the amazing Mets and Hollywood loves miracles and they love amazing things. And, you know, I think this is the reason they sort of pop up so much in movies and it would be great if they got their own movie one day. I'm still holding out hope for it. <laughs> and hey, come on, Butch Hedo in uh in Rookie of the Year. <laughs> right. Who could forget? <laughs> Who could forget him? But um, no, I agree. And I'm sure, you know, there's such a um preconceived notion about the Mets. And I'm sure as fans of the team, we have different outlooks than or different perspectives than people do from the outside looking in. But, you know, the, the hapless sad sack um, perennial loser Mets, like, yeah, there there's ups and downs just like any other team. And it just so happens that our Metsies have some very, very distinct ups and downs. I mean, that's even up until current times, but yeah, I, they're not the, perennial losers that everyone no. I guess makes them out to be. And I don't even know that if, if a, a world series win or even a few of them could ever change that, like as a, on a grander perspective, like are there always going to be the, the underdogs to the Yankees? Will they always be just the, Oh yeah, they're good now, but they're just the Mets. Like you could make that into a storyline in itself. And then, you know, the story of the underdog, that's just a, you know, it's it's just a story as old as time. Every baseball movie is an underdog story, pretty much like every single one. So the Mets would be perfect. But I, I do agree with you that I don't think the Mets are as hapless a team as they are given credit for. I saw some stat, I think, last year that of all the expansion teams, the Mets are like tied for second in World Series titles or something like that, because even in the 21st century, the original MLB teams are still winning like a lot of the World Series. But 
Um, I, mean, I think the Astros have more and maybe the Mets are tied for second with like a bunch of other teams with two. And when you consider it in that, you know, in that respect, like they're not really a failure of a franchise at all. They're just kind of average. But I guess next to the Yankees sometimes and given the expectations that are placed on them, it, they feel like much more of a kind of losing franchise than they really are. Well, I guess, you know, winning a championship more than every few decades will probably help the cause of it. But um, I feel like they're on their way. I really do. I I, I still I believe in the Cohen regime. I know some people are very um are getting a little impatient because it's not, you know, instant turnaround, but I like where they're heading. I don't I honestly don't mind the offseason they had, all things considered, with the huge tax bill that's coming. I like the depth. I like the core. I like the idea that they're gonna have to earn every single shred of anything they get this year. Um, and again, that's how things stand now looking, you know, three weeks till spring training, they could still make some moves and really, I guess, improve their probabilities. But as of right now, I mean, this is a, a middling club that has the potential to be, to, to, you know, make a postseason run possibly, but you know, this isn't a team that was set up into a, a $300 million payroll like they were last year. It's going to be a bit different. Um, what are your thoughts going into this season? It's been a bit of a roller coaster. Are <laughs> you still gung ho? That's the word I was just going to use was roller coaster. Um, I've had some dark times during this off season. I've had some, <laughs> some good times. Um, I, I feel like, you know, once I kind of accepted the fact that the, the expectations were going to be a little lower this year than they've been in years past, I've been much more comfortable with what they've been doing. Um, I, I think this is a year that has a huge variance in the possibility of outcomes here. You know, I think there's a chance things, a few things break right. And this is a playoff team. I think that's definitely possible. I also think there's a chance a few things break wrong and they're just as bad as last year. Like I could, I could literally see that happening, but you know, like if, yeah, maybe Severino and Hauser and these guys don't turn out to be great, but what if there is a big injury to someone like Kodai Sam? or Lindor like I feel like there's no backup plan for if something like that happens like if if, if they get some bad luck in that area this season's going to feel over pretty fast but I think even in the scenario of a you know quote-unquote bad season there's going to be a lot of things to be excited about because we're going to watch all these young players get a chance this year you know there will be injuries and some of these young guys that we've had our eyes on in the minors for years now are going to get their shot and God, that's all we need. Like, I don't need every season to be a winning season, but I need some reason for hope. And I think those guys are going to provide a lot of hope, kind of no matter how the regular season actually goes from a win-loss perspective. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, this could be, has the potential to be a decent season, has the potential to be a really, really tough season. Yeah. But hey, I mean, we're Mets fans. We can we can deal with that. Um, Long-term, you still buying into the, the Cohen and now Stern's vision of, yeah, things are going to turn around. And do you think like the foundations being built that things can turn around on a reasonably, you know, quick yeah. basis? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's kind of an important year in a lot of ways because, you know, we were all excited when Cohen came on board and he he tried this one approach, which was let's go, let's go buy some players. And it worked for one year and it failed spectacularly the next year. And he's had to reset. And now he's doing it with this this hotshot, David Stearns. And I think we're all excited about him. But if, if it doesn't work with David Stearns, then what do we do? I mean, I don't want to go too far into my pessimism, but I do. 
I worry about like, what is the next thing after that, if that doesn't work? Because we will have thrown money at the problem. We'll, we would have thrown a smart GM at the problem. We will have thrown, you know, a lot of changes in player development at the problem. If God forbid that doesn't work, that's the only thing that keeps me up at night. Like right now, I'm going to just go into this season with optimism and hope that Stearns knows what he's doing. I think there's a really strong possibility that he does. I think his his uh, emphasis on depth pieces for this season has been really, really smart. Um, I'm just, I feel a little sense of urgency that these next few years kind of need to work out. And uh, I'm hoping and praying that they do. Oh, and I, I think you uh, you struck a great chord as far as um, what happens if Stearns doesn't work out. That's a that's a sobering question because <laughs> that hadn't even crossed my mind honestly until you said it. Like I, that's how much confidence I have in the vision right now, and maybe that's you know naive of me, and it is what it is. <laughs> I fan how I fan, but um, yeah. like really, what is the next step after that? Like well, then, that's when you start curse? thinking about that's when you start thinking about curses, you know, like because we've done everything we can do. <laughs> that's awesome. I said the same thing. I'm like, are we cursed? What is yep. it? Uh, <laughs> that thought always lingers in the back of my mind. I don't really believe in curses, but as a Mets fan, I don't totally not believe in them either. Oh, uh, Imagine it's the uh, it's the base hit that should have been foul on Johan's uh, no hitter. Oh, and that, imagine that's what did it. There's probably no way to reverse that. We're done. We're cooked. Well, I do. I talk about this a bit in the book. How there is this element of, you know, faith and belief in the supernatural around this game. You know, we talk about the baseball gods when things go our way, or more often when they don't go our way. So there is always this element of like. There's something here that's out of our control and we're going to do our best, like be the best fans we can. We're going to we're going to advocate for our, our team to make the best choices. But in the end, there are there are higher powers that are impacting what's going on on the field. I, I feel like that's sort of baked into fandom and, and definitely baked into our understanding of the game. Oh, my, I was a late teen through the Yankees dynasty and I, I've mm-hmm. seen Yankee Stadium and October Yankee magic happened. And no, it wasn't fun to watch, oh, yeah. but I've seen it happen. Uh, you you can't discount these things. Jeter hitting home runs after 9-11. Like, you know, Mike Piazza's home run after 9-11, but yep. Jeter's home run in the, in the, in the postseason. I mean, yeah, no, there's magic in baseball. There are definitely some moments like when you just know something special is going to happen. You can just feel it in your bones before it happens. And that's that's always the most thrilling thing for me in this game. And those and those are the tears that baseball and sports and sports movies bring, man. It's the yeah. it's it's the stuff that you're seeing. It's like this isn't scripted. This is just beautiful. And hundred percent agree. That's the energy you try to pull in a baseball movie. It's that unscripted beauty. Yep. Ah, no. How <laughs> excited were you to put this together finally? It, it's been a fantastic process. You know, people talk about writing a book is really difficult. And I have to be honest, this wasn't because it's a topic I love to think about. I love to watch these movies over and over. I love to write about them. I got to interview really cool people for the book. I I talked to Joe Posnanski. I talked to former athletes like Brandon McCarthy and Jerry Blevins sat down and talked with me for the book. And I got to interview the director, Richard Linklater, for the book as well, because he's touched on baseball in a number of his movies. And he's always been sort of a creative hero of mine. Um, so it's just been, it's been fantastic. And I just, you know, we were talking offline about the cover. I just got the cover tonight and, uh, All right. 
that was an incredible moment because my team, they did a really amazing job with it. And it just it, it becomes more real every day, this book. And I can't wait to get it out there into the world. Well, you're going to have to DM me over a, a, a nice image. I'll have to include that in the, uh, in the pod that's coming out tomorrow. I will, for sure. Excellent. Um, now, you do movie reviews and stuff on your Substack as well, right? I do film reviews on the Substack, and I do some baseball essays as well, some kind of soul-searching, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I so miserable over this game uh, kind <laughs> of essays. Uh, the Substack is called Good Eye which I think is both like a film thing and a baseball thing. And uh, you can find it if you just search Good Eye and, um, and my name. And I'll be doing book promotion on there as well. So if you want to get the latest on the book and any events I might have coming up, I will be doing some events in New York. Uh, you should definitely sign up for that uh, Substack. Guys, everything is going to be linked in the description on the pod and in the description at the um, article at the Apple. Please follow Noah, follow the Substack, pre-order the book. Um, I believe it's out May 14th, May 14th. But, uh, as most of you probably know, at this point, the pre-orders are really important, especially for a first time author like myself. So if you are interested, uh, I would, I'd be thrilled. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble bookshop, all the normal places right now. Do you have a, a local shop that you like to plug that, um, anyone who likes to go and buy their books in person would maybe like to, um, uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing an event at Word Bookstore in Brooklyn, uh, probably in May. I may have a special guest with me there, a Mets-related special guest, although that's still TBD. But that's a great bookstore. So if you are in Brooklyn, you should uh, go check it out. Uh, May, four May 14th or later, the book will be there. All right, guys. Pre-order, pre-order, pre-order. We know how that goes, and we are going to plug that no matter what. Of course, links will be in the uh, description as well. No, I can't thank you enough for joining us. We might have ran a little overtime, and Andrew, thank you for uh, for uh, doing a little extra editing for us uh, as far as time-wise, but really, can't thank you enough, and um, congratulations on the book. It's such an accomplishment, and um, can't wait for it to come out, man. Thanks, man. I really appreciate this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Oh, anytime. Once the book comes out, we'll have to have you back, and um, we'll do this again. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome, man. All right, guys. That's it. We'll be back next week. Uh, you know the call letters. It's LFGM. We'll see you guys next time. Peace.